The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Natasha Feroz and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of the writers from the magazine to read their pieces. This week we've got Stuart Ritchie asking how worried we should be about falling sperm counts. Mary Wakefield writes about making memories. And Toby Young on his Airbnb disaster. First up, Stuart Ritchie. Seed of doubt. How worried should we be about falling sperm counts? Here's a jolly thought to start the year. Humanity is on its way to extinction due to a drastic decline in sperm counts. Men's reproductive health is in such a parlous state that it won't be long until nobody can conceive a child unassisted. That, anyway, is the argument that's now become a perennial. Every year or so, most recently just at the end of 2022, a new sperm counting study emerges and reignites the fears that we're biologically condemned to extinction. How anxious should we be? Here's the story so far. In 1992, a seminal study was published in the British Medical Journal that claimed to show evidence for decreasing quality of semen during the past 50 years. It was a meta-analysis, a review paper, that gathered together all relevant studies that measured sperm count since 1938, lining up the results to discern any trends. The conclusion was that the average sperm count had fallen from 113 million per milliliter, the standard unit in this field, in the early 20th century, to 66 million per milliliter by the 1990s. The study was torn to pieces. There simply isn't a fair comparison, other researchers noted, between 1940s and 1990s equipment for measuring sperm count, the latter being far more accurate. Not only that, but there was very little data available for the first 30 years of the analysis. Samples from a mere 184 men were included, so the comparison across time was murky. Critics re-analysed the data and found no evidence of a decline in sperm count overall. The debate went quiet while more data accumulated. Then, in 2017, researchers put fresh data together and published a new meta-analysis. Looking at 244 data points beginning in the 1970s, Average sperm count had dropped from 99 to 47 million per milliliter by 2011, approximately a 50% decline. Shanna Swan, one of the authors of the 2017 meta-analysis, wrote a book, Countdown, that made apocalyptic claims about declining sperm counts. She claimed that the phenomenon threatens human survival, and that extrapolating the line from her study meant that sperm counts would reach zero in 2045. Yikes. Like the study from 1992, the 2017 analysis had its critics. Some of their arguments, though, were rather weak. For instance, a few researchers noted that even though sperm counts had dropped, the current average would still be considered normal under standard medical guidelines. It's not until it falls below 15 million per milliliter that you have a serious problem. It's not a great argument. Imagine if someone said... Sea levels have been rising dramatically, but we shouldn't worry because major cities are not yet underwater. Such daft thinking is based on a failure to look forward in time. Not only that, 
But if the average is so much lower now, the proportion of men with a medically low sperm count must be far greater than it was. Alas, politics also set in. Since the meta-analysis appeared, some commentators have been happy to help spread panic about the coming fertility crisis. This caused an equal and opposite reaction. One group of researchers fretted that the studies might be co-opted by men's rights or alt-right activists, and that the science could become racialized, implying imperiled white male fertility. It's a rather silly form of criticism, but it contains an element of truth. The meta-analysis included very few studies from non-Western countries, rendering it impossible to make claims about a worldwide decline in fertility. This brings us to the newest addition to the debate. The same researchers have now published an update to their 2017 meta-analysis, including 44 more data points, many of which are from a more diverse array of countries. It's still bad news. Not only do they find, using the same methods, that the sperm count decline is happening in non-Western countries too, but they find that the decline has become even more precipitous since 2000. Yikes again. Here's where it's helpful to look at some details of how the individual studies in the meta-analysis were done. The best kind of study is a prospective study. You take sperm samples from a group of, say, 20-year-olds in, say, 2001, then wait a decade and take samples from a group of people who are 20 in 2011. That generation-on-generation comparison is really what we want to know. But because it takes so much time and effort, it's the rarest kind of study. You can count them on one hand. Far more studies are retrospective. For instance, looking at samples given to one sperm bank over some time period and comparing the counts with the year of birth of the donors. There are many more studies of this kind, but they can be misleading, since the donor's age, not just their year of birth, could really be the cause of the sperm count differences. We know that sperm counts naturally diminish as people get older, and so this is why the better studies compare donors who were born in different years but are the same age at the time of donation. Many more data points come from one-off studies that are entered into the meta-analysis and compared. That's not optimal since the studies differ on many other factors that are hard to control. The method of measuring sperm count, the characteristics and health of the donors, and so on. Critics argue that in trying to compare all the different studies with all their different variables, the meta-analysis ends up with meaningless conclusions. They say that the researchers mistake changes in measurement, study-to-study health differences, or mere statistical noise, for true changes in sperm count. I'm sympathetic to the idea that meta-analyses are unreliable, but several of those individual, high-quality, prospective studies, the ones that compare people of the same age over decades, have shown worrying, declining trends in at least some parts of the world. Then again, as with the original 1992 study, we have much less data from further in the past, making the comparison across time much harder. Neither side should be too certain, but to my eyes, the evidence we have should at least concern us enough to look at this much more closely. If you thought that was all very tangled, wait until we get to the issue of the practical consequences of this drop in sperm counts. We know that the fertility rate, at least in the developed world, has declined massively since the mid-20th century. But it's not known to what extent, if at all, this has anything to do with fecundity, that is, How much is it due to a drop in the biological ability to have kids, which might have to do with sperm count, as opposed to social or economic factors such as greater education and employment for women, less child mortality, high cost of housing, and so on? And here's a final question. 
If we agree sperm count really is declining, then what's causing it? Shanna Swan is convinced that it's largely due to environmental pollutants, specifically the chemicals given off by some plastics known as phthalates, which can disrupt our hormones. There's some unclear evidence of this from animal studies, though not much from humans. One prospective study that tested the donor's urine for phthalates found that they were able to explain about a fifth of the overall decline in sperm counts. Other than phthalates, higher rates of obesity and poor diet are plausible, and other environmental pollutants, not just plastics, could also have an effect. That's the broader problem. We have so many possible trends and potential explanations, all with very little certainty. We don't even know whether we have a phenomenon of declining sperm count in the first place, let alone what might be causing it. Given its importance, it is something approaching a scandal that we don't have better data, collected routinely in medical examinations and added to healthcare datasets, or as part of studies explicitly set up to address this question, on trends over time. Studies that argue that humanity is doomed certainly grab the headlines, and fears are buoyed by over-the-top press releases like that from the meta-analysts, which warned of a looming crisis. Despite that, it's not time to panic, but it is time for medical scientists to really get to work. That was Stuart Ritchie. Next, Mary Wakefield. If I could make a New Year's resolution for everyone in the English-speaking world, it would be that we all agree never to use the phrase making memories again, or to think about life in terms of making memories, let alone post a photo with the hashtag making memories. All of a sudden, across the internet, it seems to me, Merchandise has sprung up, encouraging us to think of life as a memory-making project. Frames, filters and albums designed to capture and enhance every breathing moment. There are mats for lying babies on, next to their age and months for memory-making photo shoots. Although none I've seen yet for the other end of life. Look how Granny changed through her 90s. My friends now regularly comment on each other's Christmas photos. What lovely memories you're making. I know it sounds unobjectionable, but I find it frightening. It's as if, under the influence of Apple, we've started living not in the present, but in some other tense, the future past, forever constructing a picture for later gratification, as if we've begun to imagine that the actual meaning of life is to record it. If I worked for Apple, I might suggest some sort of photo-based life scoring system. I think customers would like it. Nice set of Instagrammable breakfasts, but where are the dogs playing in the surf? Only seven out of ten. Must make better memories. The usual criticism of life, as presented on social media, is that it's too curated, that people post only their most enviable moments. My issue with making memories isn't that the photos and videos are selective, so much that they're fictitious. You cannot record life and live it properly at the same time. That's just a fact. And if I feel strongly about it, it's only because I'm riddled with guilt. I don't post on social media but I still compulsively record my life. I have on my phone, for instance, a cracking set of Christmas photos of my family frolicking in Weirdale, County Durham. The low and stormy sunlight catches the tips of the heather and a rainbow fills the sky, arching down beside my smiling son. If I was the posting sort rather than the online stalking sort, my online friends would imagine that before and after this magical shot, life had continued full of unselfconscious moorland fun. The reality was more like this. Keddie, that's my son. Keddie, stand there, would you? No, a bit to the left. Yeah, yeah, I know it's raining, but seriously, it's not cold. Just a bit more to the left. Love, please. 
It's going to look so cool. If I give you a polo, will you smile? As we pushed through the heather, up to the summit's cairn, I trailed behind, face in phone, cropping the rainbow photo, tinkering with its colours. Mom, stop looking at your phone. The pitiful cry of the 21st century child. Apple makes video montages for its users. Clips of your own photos and videos set to music. They're disgusting, but also irresistible. My husband and I watch them sometimes, sitting side by side, grinning like a pair of old buzzards, at footage of our son, interspersed with the odd shot of a bank statement, or a sofa that future algorithms will know to edit out. In a few days, that fraudulent rainbow shot will have slid into a memory-making montage, and I'll have quite forgotten that events weren't exactly as described. I imagine myself and my husband being visited by an updated version of the Christmas Carol ghost, who'll show me a photo roll of real life as it would have looked to an observer, just an endless series of me ogling at my phone. And what is it all for? Who are those 15,000 photos saved in my iCloud for? I'm aware as I write of the faint feeling that this is a form of insurance policy, and that wherever I wash up in my 80s, I'll at least have an unending loop of fake memories for company. A simpler explanation is that the obsession with memory making just provides us phone junkies with an opportunity for a fix. If you're caught on a family walk looking at Facebook or Twitter, a spouse is apt to become a little snappy. But who can complain if you're simply making family memories? If I ask my pals what their extensive photo archives are for, they say they're for the kids. We were born in the pre-phone era, so must, most of us have, at best, just a few albums. Pictures of pasty-looking children in hand-me-down shirts with pointed 1970s collars. Won't it be wonderful for our own children, say my friends, to be able to scroll back through their lives and see photos or videos documenting almost every day? I'm not so sure. It's not that I don't value the photos I have, but they are so few and far between they pose no threat to my own internal memories. And the older I get, the more I value those, the real memories. Real childhood memories haunt the edges of adult life. They involve the feel and smell of things. My mother's dressing table and the smell of Elnet hairspray. Floorboards creaking after dark. Real childhood memories are of close-up things. Wallpaper, gravel, hands, cake. Memories made from an adult perspective have nothing to do with childhood. Will a child brought up on a diet of recorded memories retain their own internal, remembered past? I don't see how they can quite. Even my generation sometimes find it hard to know if we remember an event, or just the photo of the event. The one affects the other. It's the same way the f a film of a favourite book erases the mental pictures you made reading it. As I sit in cafes in London N1, I see parents appeasing their progeny by showing them snippets of themselves on their phones, this was you as a toddler, darling, weren't you cute? It's strange to think that for Generation Alpha, that's the post-Generation Z lord, some of their earliest memories will be of looking at photos of themselves, which their parents took in the interest of making memories. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Toby Young. Caroline likes to rent somewhere on Airbnb between Christmas and New Year to break up the winter holiday. No, not in Courchevel or Barbados, I'm afraid, but something a bit more affordable. Last year, we spent three days in Margate, which worked out quite well, save for the eggy smell on the seafront. This year, she decided to rent a house in Cardiff. It was not a success. 
The reason for choosing that particular city is that QPR were playing Cardiff at 5.15 on Boxing Day. The plan was to embark on the drive after lunch, drop the bags off, then head to the stadium. We'd stay in Cardiff until 29th of December, at which point we'd drive back to London in time for our home game against Luton. I can imagine many wives balking at organising family holidays around QPR's fixture list, and if I was the only Rangers fan in the household, it definitely wouldn't happen. But my four kids are all avid supporters as well, so Caroline has reluctantly fallen into line. I decided to enlist them in this sadomasochistic cult when they were too young to know any better. After all, misery loves company. On arrival at the Airbnb, the first thing we noticed was how cold it was. Not just because it was only a few degrees above freezing, but because the central heating wasn't working. We called up the owner, who evidently hadn't got far, because he appeared almost immediately and explained that the boiler was broken and we'd have to make do with fan heaters. Not only that, but the window in the kitchen was locked in an open position. He'd lost the key and none of the doors to the rooms closed. I'm not making that up. This chap was an amateur builder and he'd hung all the doors himself with the upshot that not a single one fitted properly. We literally couldn't shut any of them. To complete the picture, the only bedding provided was the cheapest, thinnest duvets I'd ever seen. Even with a fan heater on full blast, it was impossible to keep warm. Now this place cost £1,265.54 for three nights, so we were expecting something that was at least functional. But it turned out nothing worked. The Wi-Fi kept cutting out, the cutlery was bent, the furniture wobbled. The toilet seat slid from side to side, creating a funfair ride effect every time you took a number two. Evidently, the landlord had bought everything in a job lot from Poundland. DIY equipment and half-empty paint cans had been shoved under every bed, as if we'd interrupted him in the middle of doing the place up, which might well have been the case. We felt like the tour party in Carry On Abroad, who arrive at their luxury hotel on the Costa Bomb, only to discover the place is a building site. To top it all, the QPR games that bookended our three-day break were dreadful. The first one was a dismal nil-nil draw in a rainy, windswept stadium that was three-quarters empty. Still, the draw meant we chalked up a point on the road, which was a huge result for us. Going, going into this game, we'd lost four of our last five matches. We hoped to put the whole miserable experience behind us when we arrived at Loftus Road to see QPR take on Luton Town on the 29th. Luton hadn't won this fixture since 1984, and they're well below us in the table. At least, they were. But the Hatters humiliated us, beating us 3-0. Their striker was clinical in front of goal, scoring twice from three chances, whereas ours missed every opportunity. We've got a new manager, having lost the last one after just 22 games, and this was his first appearance in front of the faithful. What a debut. In our fourth home, It was our fourth home defeat in a row. In truth, this short holiday was so comically awful, it was actually quite fun. I'm one of those Englishmen who likes nothing more than a good grumble, and this mini-break gave me plenty to complain about. Had it merely been mediocre, had the central heating worked, and had QPR managed to eke out another nil-nil draw against Luton, I definitely wouldn't have enjoyed myself as much. I even quite liked our family outing to Cardiff Castle, the only bit of sightseeing we managed. Not because the castle was impressive, although it was, but because it rained continuously and we all got completely soaked. 
dare I say it, I probably like this staycation more than I would have a trip to Mauritius or the Maldives. I think I must be a miserableist at heart, which is why being a QPR supporter suits me so much better than being a Chelsea or an Arsenal fan. Happy New Year. That was Toby Young. And that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode and do join us again next week.